Our scripture reading for this morning comes from the book of Titus, Titus chapter 3. And as we've been doing for several weeks now, we're going to read this together. I'll begin and then we'll all come together on the odd numbered verses. So let's stand together for the reading of God's word. This is Titus chapter 3. And verse 1, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, Slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. Let's pray. Father in heaven, with our Bibles open, we ask that you open our heart, open our mind, open our eyes that we may see this for what it is, the greatest news ever told. Lord, may we understand what we're reading and studying this morning so that we can obey it. Be our teacher. Make us your student. We ask all this in your name. Amen. You may be seated. We begin chapter number three this morning. After many weeks of studying chapter two and chapter one, chapter three comes after chapter two and chapter one. And we need to remember, we need to review that. We learned in chapter 1 the expectations that are given to the church regarding their leadership, that there's certain qualifications that must be met for a church to be a healthy church, to be a church the way God designed it. And we learned that God gets to say how the church is put together. So we carefully follow those guidelines, those qualifications as expectations of a healthy church. Chapter 2, we learned not necessarily about the leadership of the church, but the membership of the church, the everybody else, how we're to treat one another inside the church, how we're to learn and who we're to learn from. Specific things were laid out for older men, younger men, older women, younger women, even the relationship between employers and employees. And the expectation on Christians to act a certain way in that sphere as well. With chapter 3, we add to the list. And we're going to learn not just what is expected in the home. That's where most of those leadership skills are proven in the home as far as the man's character. Or the expectations within the membership and in the body. But both of those groups, leadership and membership together, answers this question. How are the unbelievers to be interacted with by the believers in the church? 
How do the saved people inside the church relate to the unsaved people outside the church? It has everything to do with the public arena, the marketplace, the public square, outside this building, in the world around us. That's what we consider with chapter 3. And a lot is riding on our representation of the things that we know to be true inside the church. We sang about this this morning. We read about it weeks ago. In chapter 2, verse 11, the grace of God hath appeared, bringing salvation. That's the offer of grace. As far as the lost world goes, it does not know what goes on in this room. They're not familiar with this book, or our God, or His Son, Jesus. We are representation of those things before they understand it. There's a lot riding on that. And that's what Paul's going to be talking about in this passage and how important it is. Just like in chapter 2, Paul's going to begin in chapter 3 with ethical instruction. We're going to read what we're supposed to do. And then he's going to lay the groundwork for it, the why we're supposed to do those things. And the why is simply because he saved us, which is what we've been singing about. Because God saved us, we are to act a certain way. Believing means behaving, as we've said so many times. So let's look at our text. Chapter 3, verse 1. First word is the word remind. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, speak evil of no one, avoid quarreling, be gentle, show perfect courtesy toward all people. It's a mouthful in those two verses. But if you notice the very first word, remind them. It indicates that these things are not new to this group of people. Meaning that the members of the churches, Titus must repeatedly press these obligations upon their thinking and upon their conscience. Things that they had heard before. I don't know if it's ever occurred to you, if you ever thought through it. Usually occurs to a teacher of the scriptures, especially those who do that 52 weeks a year. There's a lot of repetition in Bible teaching. The Bible's a big book, 66 books within that book. Some people think they're doing good to get through it in an entire year. But if you should do that for years on end, there's a lot of things that you hear over and over and over again. There's a lot of very important patterns that we see. I don't know if they've ever occurred to you, but... For the teaching pastor, it, it, it's almost a, a, a vexing annoyance to have to think about, okay, how can I take something that we know, everybody knows, but make it interesting enough that you don't become aware of the fact that you already know it? Because there's a risk. If you think that you've already heard this before, then you might say, you know what? I know that. So I can think about fishing or what I'm going to eat for lunch. Or the week that's busy, busier than last week, I've got a lot to do. That would be a mistake. These are things the Cretans already knew. These are things that many of us already know. But just like being obedient Christians, repetition is what makes better Christians. Like practice makes perfect as far as your disciplines go. So we teach these things a lot. And we're going to keep teaching them. You're going to see these in other places in the Bible. 
If, if you just were to go through the Bible and look at that, how many times did the Israelites get into trouble because of things they forgot? I mean, the Red Sea opens and you get to the other side and watch your enemy drown and then you begin to complain about food. Or the disciples who Jesus had to remind, I fed 5,000, where's your faith? There's something to be said about the discipline of repetition. And we should be faithful in it. It'd be a good study to just go through the New Testament looking at John and Peter and Paul and looking at the things they have reminded us. Things they said more than once. Well, these are things that have been said more than, month, more than once. Here's how we'll organize the material this morning. We're only going to concern ourselves with the first three verses. We read six so as to get the fuller picture not only of what we're supposed to do, but why, uh, our conduct, and then the salvation that makes it possible. But we'll look at the first three today, and there are four points we'll see in this text regarding those three verses. Number one is loyalty. That's in verse one. Number two is community. We also see that in verse one. Number three will be courtesy. That's in verse two. And humility, which we'll see in verse three. So four words, loyalty, community, courtesy, and humility. These points will come from the first three verses. So loyalty, number one, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities and to be obedient. We're talking about authorities. This is government, actually. So we've talked about the home, we've talked about the church, we've talked about the workplace. Now we're going to talk about the government, actually. Uh, this is loyalty or allegiance to the legitimate ruler or government of one's country. This was a different situation back in Crete than it is today, but there are similarities. This is not talking about a loyalty that shifts based on the control of a particular party or partisan group or movement, but rather a loyalty that understands the function of government as being by the ordination of God. Do you believe that? That the government is in position, purposed, and put there by God for the purpose of order? Well, that's what the Bible teaches. It's inconvenient when you don't agree with the government that you're subject to, but it is there as a command, not a suggestion. Paul had written to Timothy about the need to pray for those in authority in 1 Timothy 2.1. And that's the basis for the reason why we pray for those in Washington, why we pray for those in our county and in our state, because they're there in a position of authority that's ordained by God, whether we agree with them or not, or whether the government itself looks godly or not, we're to pray for them. And now in Titus, Paul is writing to remind these people of their duty to obey the government that they pray for. Now here's the rub in Crete and in America. So we'll look at the wasness of ancient Crete and the isness of American government. The political climate of first century Crete was notoriously turbulent. They were not a nice people. They were an opinionated people. And the authority was from Rome. Some of the people liked that, some of them didn't. And it was their reputation. We heard Paul quote one of their poets poking fun of their uh, reckless type of characterization. Do you think that 
a turbulent political climate is anything that Americans these days could be familiar with. And I think it fits. I think it fits right well. It fits so good that we don't need to waste much time talking about how good it fits. But because Paul sees fit to remind them about their obligations to a government that seems to be itself tumultuous, maybe it's such a good idea to remind ourselves as well. So not only is it their time to review, it's our time to review as well. And we would learn this. You don't have to turn there. Just listen as I read it. Romans 13, 1 and 2. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there's no authority except from God. And those who exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. And don't forget who was in charge when Paul was writing these things. Nero. The tradition tells us was the one responsible for giving the order to remove his head in time. These things were said by that man. And someone might say, but wait a minute. What if the government tells you to do something that you know is not what Scripture would have you to do? Well, then you've got an exception. And in Acts 5, Peter and the apostles had their exception when the Jews said, stop teaching the name of Jesus. In fact, they said, we strictly charge you not to teach in this name, yet you've filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. It's no wonder why they wanted them to be quiet. But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. And make no mistake that that would eventually cost them their lives. So we need to watch the exception and know when and when not to use it. And I don't think we're anywhere as near to that exception as many would say we are. When it comes time to make that exception, it's likely going to cost us dearly. I don't think that time is yet. What we need to focus on is not when to use the exception, but when to be an exemplary citizen, the best Americans that America has. Namely, the ones that are bought by the blood of Jesus. If any American should know how to be an American, it should be a Christian American. So this, pa this passage here is about our, our uh, being an example, a standout in our government. And obeying and being law-abiding. It's not just being a law-abiding citizen, but the next point, which is community, is to be a public-spirited citizen as well. This is uh, by those words, to be ready for every good work. So not just that you obey the laws and submit to the authority, but that you're ready for every good work. That's different. That, that's not being part of the government so much as, as being part of the community under the government. Now, we don't want to say more than this passage says. We don't want to say less than this passage says either. And a lot of times this gets confused with just charity. Charity is kind of a private thing, or it can be. It's as easy as writing a check from your kitchen table. And you don't necessarily need to see those people or even know them to be able to give your resources to them. And that's great, and it's a good thing. But this seems to be talking more about a hands-on uh, involvement in the community that you live in. Um, prepared and willing to participate in activities that promote the welfare of the community you live in. In other words, not to stand coldly aloof, a conscientious objector, a, a non-participator. I don't 
do that. Well, you represent Christ. And he did. So we need to work on it. If that's not your strength. But show good public spirit. Proving that Christianity is a constructive presence in the in this society. When people drive by this church, what difference does this building make? That's in large part to the people inside this building and what difference they make in their lives. It, it might mean everything. You know, there's certain buildings you drive by that you don't even notice them because you don't know anybody inside them. We should work to change that and leave the community we live in better than we found it. I think that's what Paul is saying. Put simply, you need to be involved and you need to be engaged. Are you involved and engaged in your children's lives? Is that good to be involved? To know what's going on? Should that be hands-on? Should you be engaged in the lives of your children? Yes. So if we hope to teach others like we hope to teach our children, it involves involvement and engagement. And that's the idea of Christian community. Loyalty, community, law-abiding, uh, public-spirited. Why not? We should be good at this if we're good Christians. And then number three is courtesy. This is where Paul gets a bit more detailed. And where uh, he, whether in, intentioning to or not, the, this gets a little closer to the skin. He says here to speak evil of no one. To avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. And it's easy enough to see Paul's concern in here. I believe this is dramatic writing. And I was told once to find the drama in the passage you're teaching and preach the drama. I think there's drama here. There's passion. Look at how he starts by saying a reference to no one. Speak evil of no one. Avoid quarreling, be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy to all people. Now, we're told not to use those types of words like never, loosely, because never means never, right? Well, all people means all people, and no one means no one. Paul's giving you absolutely no excuse to be anything other than courteous to everybody and no less than non-confrontational, evil-speaking, or quarrelsome with anybody. That's a tall order. I don't think we're on par or in step with the American culture as it is. I don't think Americans are described as non-evil-speaking, courteous, and gentle. They're more abrasive than that. They're not... Uh, well broken in flannel bed sheets in the wintertime. They're more like 120 grit brand new sandpaper with all the dust still attached to it. Very gritty. Drive down the roads in this town and see if that's not true. I got waved at. I could see it from my rearview mirror the other day. I didn't even know what I did. That's not this, and that's not the way we act. It's Paul's concern that there are no exemptions. Now look how he laid it out here. There are 
There are four attitudes, socially speaking, to be applied universally. Two are negative, two are positive. Negatively, first, we are to slander no one. That means to tell lies about them. We are to be peaceable. That's not quarreling. So we must not speak against nor fight against other people. Whether in speech or behavior, we are neither to be offensive nor argumentative. That, again, does not match where we live. And the idea of carrying around your, 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 your ideas and feelings and emotions such that any and everything's liable to set you off as an offense. Notice the importance that such an idea, those things, how much value they would place on the truth. Slander is telling lies about people or exaggerating or leveraging what you're saying with a low value on truth. It seems as if this is placing a high value on truth. Do you think we could find a better example of these things than the headlines coming out of our nation's capital this past week? Do you think that was a a, a, a collective uh, attempt at the discovery of truth. What actually happened? Do we have evidence? Do we have testimony? Can we access the truth? And does that matter? Or were there other things going on? Or was it a display of watching different groups, different parties, different uh, agendas, different causes, different banners... Leveraging whatever they could get their hands on to get what they wanted out of the whole thing. Who cares what actually happened? Whether the man is appointed or not. Can we get at the truth of all this? Truth is important to Christians. We are representatives of the banner of truth. The most uh, famous of 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 political speak from a political figure in the New Testament is probably Pilate when he asked the question, what is truth? Right? And what did Jesus say? Wondrously in response to that. This is the reason I was born to bear witness to the truth. Now who's on trial in that situation? Looks as if Jesus is on trial. There's a mob that want him dead and Pilate's about to make a ruling. But what did Jesus say? He said, I'm here, sent here, born here to bear witness to the truth. What does a witness do? The witness brings information on behalf of the truth that they're looking for by use of a testimony or, 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 or hard evidence. So if, if he's the witness, what is on trial? The truth is on trial. His truth claims is there such a thing as a God? Is this his son? Is he here to die for the sins of the world? And will that satisfy the wrath of his Father in heaven who said in the Garden of Eden, if you sin, you will die? Did what Jesus say to Nicodemus make sense if all of this is to be true, that God so loved the world that he gave this son who's here to bear witness to the truth that if you believe in him, you don't have to perish but can have eternal life. The truth is of utmost importance. Here's the point here. Partisan politics in America. 
might use as the tools of their trade and argument slander and quarreling. But the Christian has no business using either because the Christian has the truth. They don't need to manufacture it. They don't need to leverage their argument by underhanded posturing against the truth to warp it or twist it. They don't need to do that. They're not allowed to do that. Jesus didn't do that. In the face of all the opposition, he stuck with the truth. This is the reason why we must as well. So positively speaking, we are to be considerate and show true humility towards all men. The two Greek words that are of interest here in verse 2, they're difficult to translate without losing much of their loveliness. It takes us many English words to say what these Greek words mean. And the first of the two uh, means to show clemency. It's a word you probably didn't use last week. It means mercy and leniency. It's described as gentleness, consideration, graciousness, even in a conciliatory fashion. The second is humility. Courtesy, consideration, and meekness. And the truth is both of these ideas were characteristic of Jesus, whom we represent because of his saving us. So can you see how it might be hard for the representative of Christ, the Christian man or woman, talking about the love of Christ to someone else who has watched them in their business dealings and have considered to uh, think them a mean person. Not listening to what you say about Jesus. You're mean. You watch how you watch how you act that way with the younger generation. You know, I missed millennialism by about two years. <laughs> One thing millennials cannot stand or stomach is a mean person. They don't understand why anybody should be mean. Now, they live under a banner of, of tolerance where everybody gets to do what anybody wants to do. And the worst thing of all is to be mean. You pretty much shoot yourself in the foot as a Christian by being a mean person. Paul has just told you not to be. And you wonder why you have difficulty communicating. Follow them out into the parking lot. Look at the back of their car where their bumper sticker will tell you what they think of mean people. There's no excuse for being mean, quarrelsome course we're to be courteous gentle it's hard to miss the totality of this requirement too because he's literally saying and literally means literally here commanding us to show all gentleness to all men no limit either to our humble courtesy or to whom we are to show it now let's get to the reason why we're to do these things and that begins in verse 3 and that's point number four, which is humility. Now, Paul is going to spell out for us the theological basis, the reasoning why we can expect and should have not only a social conscience, but behave responsibly in public life in front of the world who's yet to believe in Jesus. And he does this, as we've said before, by reminding us that we were once anti-social. It's wondrous how he describes for us why we should be so kind to the world that is not like us. Because once upon a time, that's exactly who we were. 
and we're not to forget it. Look at verse 3. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. This is the way we once were. It's the title of this morning's message, The Way We Were, which we should never forget. That is, the only reason we dare say that we've got the answers to life's most important questions is because we once had no answers to life's most important questions. God saved us from that and gave us those answers, that truth, so He can save others. If He saved us, likely He can save others. That's the idea in the mind of the lost. If what we look like is a genuine Christian. So let's look quickly through the description of the way we were. Paul has gone to detail to explain these things here. We might as well pay attention to them. There are two pairs, or actually, uh, yeah, two pairs of four, it seems. And uh, four sets of pairs, actually. Let's look at them. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient. Foolish is one part of the pair, disobedient is the other. So in other words, we were mentally and morally depraved. That's what that means. To be foolish is to have a mental issue, when you say. And to be a disobedient is to have a, a, a moral issue. And then the next pair actually elaborates on that by saying, led astray and slaves to various passions and pleasures. Both of those are in the passive form in the Greek, which means that we were shaped by things beyond our control. This started with our foolishness and disobedience, but we didn't stay foolish. We were then deceived and led astray. And we didn't start by being disobedient. We actually became enslaved to the things that we were a part of. So it goes from bad to worse. Then it says we were passing our days or living a lifestyle of malice and envy. John Stott says these are very ugly twins. Malice is wishing evil on someone, while envy is coveting or resenting the things that they have. And both of these things destroy relationships. That's not a way to influence people, to win friends, is to, with malice and envy. That pushes you away from any and everyone. And then lastly, kind of a summary of it all, hated by others and hating one another, to just say that the awful hostility inside those relationships is reciprocal. You not only hate them, but they hate you. And that's basically a good description of the way the world turns. Wouldn't you say? That's the way we were if we're saved. And we're going to need that. Because what Paul is doing here in 3 is drawing a visit, vivid contrast between the way we were in 3 and the way we can be in verses 1 and 2. He's been drawing that contrast over and over and over and over again. And he, he, he started this process as early as chapter 1 verse 16 where he warned that those who profess to know Jesus but deny Him by their words, those are false teachers. Then in verse 1 of chapter 2, he said, teach what accords with the truth. Actual life uh, practices that line up with the truth that you know because people are watching. In verse 5 of chapter 2, so that the word of God is not reviled. There can't be a discrepancy between you as a representative of what you're 
preaching and you're actually living. And then in verse 8 of chapter 2, so that an opponent, opponent has nothing to say bad about the church because they actually live what they preach. And then in verse 10 of chapter 2, so that they may adorn the gospel and make it attractive. Over and over and over again, he's drawing out the connection between the offer of grace and those who represent it here on earth, known as Christians. And there can be no discrepancy between the two, or you have no witness. Why this is important is because most people who don't know the Bible and don't know Jesus don't really care what you think they ought to be doing with their lives. But they might actually care to hear what God has done for your life if your life looks like something they wish theirs was. That's why this is important. Paul is saying there should be no discrepancy. Now we see a discrepancy all the time in the marketplace. You've been pitched something. You're supposed to give money. You get the product. You find out the product isn't anywhere near what you thought it would be based on the pitch you were given. Right? I don't know how it is here in Carolina. I haven't spent that much time in your membership warehouses. But the one in Danville, you go down the center aisle, and I know what's down there. On the left is the meat, and on the right is the bread. But before you can get there, you've got to pass this table and a guy with a blue shirt. <laughs> and he's going to ask you a question. What satellite TV provider do you have? And based on the way you answer, there's one answer that he's done. Thank you. Have a good day. Any other answer, you're probably going to be there for a while unless you have major buyer's resistance. There's something I've wanted to do because I've been asked that question so many times. But I've never had the guts to do it. But I want to ask him, what TV provider do you have? <laughs> And do you have to pay for it or is it given to you? And if it's paid for, do you think it's expensive? Do you think that it's as amazing as it's marketed to be? Or do you really know that there's basically nothing on those gazillion channels? Except for a handful of channels. And wouldn't it be nice if you could pay for those channels and not have to pay for all the rest of the channels? And be honest with me, don't you think that Shark Week is nothing like it used to be? <laughs> used to could learn something from it. Little boys used to sit around and wait for Shark Week. I can learn about sharks and see real sharks. But now it's just computer-generated sharks and what looks like a, an accident of food coloring in the ocean. Or actually a hot tub. It's fake. And maybe the guy would say, you know what, you're right. It's expensive, it's garbage, it's... It, please don't buy this. <laughs> that would be an accurate representation. This is kind of backwards than that because we're not selling TV. We're representing the grace that appeared in the person of Jesus Christ to square us with his Father because of our sin debt that we can't pay. But the same problem occurs if there's a discrepancy between the actual offer of grace and the representation of it as far as the way we live our lives. We can cause just as much confusion, perhaps, as some of the things we see in our marketplace.
So what do we do about it? And, and just to answer, perhaps there's somebody here today, you're just now beginning to think through the claims of Jesus. You're not familiar with the truths in the Bible. And that's, that makes sense if you haven't been in a place like this for a long time or grown up here or done like this for Sundays on end. But for that type of person, I would say... Uh, it would be wrong to look at this passage as some type of, of, of uh, sales orientation to make sure that the representatives of Christianity uh, are seeing good sales, good quotas by, by looking the part as if that's how the whole transaction is to take place. It's not like that. Don't think of it in terms of the marketplace because there's really only one source that's authoritative in describing the truth of Jesus and it's not the Christians who live like Jesus. It's the word of Jesus that he gave us. It's the description of himself. This passage is about us getting in the way of this. The lost world doesn't read this. They look at us. And we may get in the way of their ever considering this and this truth because our representation puts a bad taste in their mouths before they ever get there. So we make sure we put it that way and so that it's quite transparent. How does the world take care of the problems of verse 3? What were those problems? Well, that's that pattern of lostness, hating each other, being hated. See, here's another thing that I think we misunderstand. I don't think the world needs as much of our explaining to them how broken and busted up the world really is. I think they know that because they live in it. We all know that. I think if they read those verses, they would say, I agree, that's the world we live in. How do they answer those questions? A lot differently than we do. They answer it maybe through education. If we have better education, maybe we can work our way out of these problems. Maybe if we have better examples, better role models. Maybe if the, the sports players would actually act like they cared about what little boys wanted to be like. That's not going to do it. Any more than the self-help section at Amazon.com or looking inside yourselves to try to find your best self now. All of these are dead roads because they all look inward. The only hope that anyone ever has was described in chapter 2, verse 11. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation. That's the offer. But it won't make sense to them unless we can say, by the time we get down to chapter 3, verse 5, He saved us he saved me and not because I'm special there's nothing for me to boast about there it wasn't by works of my righteousness but because of his kindness and mercy he reached down and took up the worthless and made it something that's what we're representing and we've got to be able to show it when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. By the process of washing and regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. That's how you reverse verse 3. From 
what you were to something completely different. It's washing, it's regeneration, it's renewal. That's where we talked about a few weeks ago. I might be in, interested in your Redeemer if you actually looked redeemed. Right? The transformation needs to be visible. We need to be able to say we once were, but now we are. And that's also a perfect place to ask the question. Verse 3, is that what you were? Or would you have to say, no, I think that's what I am. And if that's what you are, you don't have to be. You can be saved. And if you think that's something you're interested in, don't leave this place without talking to me or David or Seth or any one of us. We'll get you the help. We'll stay here all afternoon if it takes to explain to you the truth of this greatest news there was ever told. But for us, we've got our work cut out for us as representatives of the grace that appeared to all men. With that said, let's bow in prayer and then we're going to sing. Father in heaven, we thank you for this truth. We ask that just as Paul speaking to Titus with the word remind, that you would press on our minds, our consciences, these things we must never forget. To never forget the way we were. That will give us humility. And humility will make us real. In the eyes of the world. We hope to bring to you. We thank you for this word today. May we understand it. And may we obey it. We ask these things in your precious name. Amen. Most gracious love and heavenly Father God. We again come to you this morning as humbled servants. Willing to do your work, Lord, and uh, just be obedient, God. Lord, we, uh, we are so privileged to be a part of um, something much bigger than us here today, God. And uh, we just ask for your continued grace and mercy upon us, each and, each and every one of us, God. Lord, we lift up our mission of the, of the week, the Caribbean Christian Center for the Deaf, um, as they work in Jamaica, Lord, to, to bring uh, the word of Jesus Christ to, uh, to a group of individuals at an early age, Lord, so that they too can, can know you, Lord. Lord, we, uh, we know that the, the greatest truth ever told, Lord, was the, the story, the life, and the message of Jesus Christ. And God, we ask that you just help us to remember that and live, live our lives each day in the way that he did, God. And then when we fall short, God, just help us know that he gave his life so that we may have eternal life, Lord. Lord, I ask for blessings on this congregation, this community, and this country, Lord, as we move forward today. Bring us back together safe and sound the next time we meet, Lord. And we ask all these things in your precious and holy son's name. Amen.